Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hello, I'm Tony Urbina, the Medical Director for CEI's HIV Primary Care and Prevention Center of Excellence. I am a provider and professor of medicine at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital, who has been working in the field of HIV for over 20 years. Preventing perinatal HIV transmission is an important strategy for eliminating HIV. Globally, an estimated 1.3 million people living with HIV become pregnant each year. In the US, the CDC estimates the number of pregnant people living with HIV is less than 5,000. Historically, rates of perinatal HIV transmission were as high as 25 to 40% without interventions. But advances in HIV research, prevention, and treatment have made it possible to reduce this risk to less than 1%. For the most recent data we have, there were 83 new perinatal HIV diagnoses in the U.S. in 2019. While perinatal HIV infections in the U.S. have steadily decreased, sharp disparities persist. Most perinatal HIV diagnoses are among Black children. For example, in 2019, perinatal HIV diagnoses for Black children made up 61% of all diagnoses. This is because social and economic factors, especially poverty, create barriers to health care that disproportionately affect people living with HIV. People with HIV may not know that they are pregnant or how to prevent or safely plan a pregnancy or what they can do to keep their baby from getting HIV. In this episode, we will review the latest guidance so providers will know how they can help reduce perinatal transmission while also helping to destigmatize HIV in pregnancy. On this episode, we are going to discuss strategies for preventing perinatal HIV transmission more broadly. We will discuss recommendations for testing and treating pregnant people. As well, we will debunk some common myths and misconceptions about HIV in pregnancy. Today, our guest is Dr. Andres Ramirez Zamudio. Dr. Ramirez Zamudio is an assistant professor in both the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Through his work in reproductive infectious diseases at the Institute for Advanced Medicine, he sees people living with HIV in and outside of pregnancy and treats multiple forms of anal genital dysplasia, sexually transmitted infections, and vulvovaginal conditions. At the Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, He also aims to provide affirmative care to patients all along the gender spectrum. Welcome, Andres, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tony. It's great being here. So, Andres, I just wanted to start off. Can you tell me a little bit about why this topic is important to you? 
Yeah, 100%. I've always had a deep interest and passion for infectious diseases. I think it's really one of the main reasons that took me to medical school. But along the way, just fell in love with obstetrics and all of the spectrum of the care that we're able to provide. And the field, which really I didn't discover till later on in my career, Repro ID, blend together some great opportunities for integrating patient care. And especially during pregnancy, where we know we're following a person oftentimes every up to every week or every two weeks. And then that person may be also having to see independently an HIV provider for their HIV care. And so really, it just provides a great opportunity to have better retention for these patients, fewer missed appointments, a dedicated team that is managing both their prenatal care and their HIV care. It's a really great opportunity to also ease some of the patient's concerns, right. assure her that things can be okay if we follow the care, the recommended care. And so it's just very, very gratifying work. And yeah, I love it. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And just the combining of OB with ID in this population is really unique. So I want to start off just what are the current HIV testing guidelines for pregnant people? Right. So definitely everyone as they come into pregnancy and prenatal, their first prenatal care visit, there's always an initial HIV test that should be done. And that's utilizing our standard sort of fourth generation antibody antigen combined testing. And that's around universal recommendation. Everyone agrees we should do that. And then most recently also we've introduced third trimester testing. And that's many states require it by law. I actually practice in New York State, which is one of the states that requires it. But in other states that don't require it, it should it's also recommended for high-risk populations, maybe those receiving prenatal care in an area where HIV incidence is higher, usually thought of like greater than one in a thousand, or maybe an incarcerated population, or in someone who recently had an STI, or obviously has signs of acute HIV infection. So in any of those instances, third trimester testing before 36 weeks would also be recommended. What's some of your sense in terms of the frequency of HIV testing in this population? Do you think it's something that we can improve or do you think most providers are like aware about these guidelines? We're doing a pretty good job actually at first trimester testing. Third trimester testing is something that I think every state should require. I think in the states that don't require the few cases of perinatal transmission that we see in this country, and there thankfully aren't that many, there were about 65 in 2018. But a lot of those cases were undiagnosed HIV of possible zero conversion of the second or third trimester or even in the postpartum. So we could definitely do a better job at making this a national mandate for third trimester testing. But I think in the first trimester testing, just because of the fact that also ACOG endorses this, CDC endorses it, multiple bodies endorse the first trimester testing, we do a pretty good job with that one. Right. And what are the preferred regimens for pregnant people living with HIV? I know we have the New York State guidelines. There are also national guidelines, CDC guidelines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. We tend to follow Department of Health and Human Services guidelines, really, who are really clear in stating that there are some preferred regimens, there's alternative Mm -hmm. regimens. The main rule here is ideally, you know about a person's plans to conceive before they actually get pregnant. And so the person comes to us for what's called a preconception 
counseling visit where we can optimize their care and see if they are in a preferred regimen. Rule number one with this whole field is if someone comes into pregnancy already on a regimen and they're well controlled and they're tolerating it well, really there's not a lot, with few exceptions, you shouldn't change their regimen, right? Mm. Now, ideally, again, if they come to you and they're not pregnant yet, we would want to make sure that they are on a they are on a regimen with a dual NNRTI backbone, which yeah. we're familiar with. And then for the anchor drug, we do like integrase trans transfer inhibitors or the INCs are one of our preferred or our main drugs. And then protease inhibitors can also be utilized as a preferred regimen. Within the alutegravir and valtegravir have the best evidence behind them. And so we tend to stick to those. Although valtegravir also requires BID dosing, so some patients don't like that. But if if possible, and if someone doesn't have any issues with the dual and NRTI plus an integrase inhibitor, that's the best that we can put them on. Right. That's a bit of a shift. I think before we're very much like uncomfortable with the choice of ART regimen. So it looks like there's a little bit more comfort with just using the current ART regimens. And it looks like the primary driver is just making sure that persons who are pregnant adhere to their medications. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if, if they happen to be on a regimen that's not our preferred, you could consider, obviously, you speak to the patient about why it's not the preferred regimen, but that maybe it'll require some more monitoring in the third trimester. As an example, any cobecystat containing regimen, it's safe in pregnancy, it's not teratogenic, but because the cobe component can interact with, especially in the second and third trimester, progesterone levels, bioavailability, just pharmacokinetics of things are a bit different because of the CYP450 interaction. Then we tell that person, yeah, we can keep you on your COBE, COBE cystic containing regimen, but maybe we'll monitor your viral load, let's say monthly, as mm-hmm. opposed to the traditional three months. And that's just because there, there, there have been some viral breakthroughs reported with COBE cyst. So that's an example of one where not ideally, if you met the patient, before they got pregnant, you would switch them out of their cobecystat-containing regimen. But if they're already pregnant with it, then you just might monitor more frequently. I think that makes a lot of sense. So we met before and you had mentioned there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about perinatal HIV transmission. Can you walk us through a little bit about what some of those myths are and unpack them a little bit for us? Yeah, definitely. The first one we touched on already, I mentioned that dalutegravir is a preferred regimen. And that's something that should be made very clear because in dalutegravir did get some bad press back in 2018 from some preliminary data that came out of a study in Botswana where there was a potential increase in neural tube defects that were noted in a population there. And that kind of caused a big scare and people stopped using it. And when finally the finalized data was published a year later, we saw that really there wasn't a a significant difference between Galitegravir and other ARTs. So that left a bad taste of everyone's mouth with dalutegravir, and that's sure a did. battle that we have to fight sometimes with. Dalutegravir has great benefits in terms of having very high barrier to resistance, really being a great viral load very quickly, very well tolerated. And all those benefits really are what make it a preferred regimen. So one of these common myths is that it's that editors will often switch people out of dalutegravir, or maybe pharmacists won't want to dispense dalutegravir. 
or a patient likewise will have fear or dali of dolutegravir. And all of that is, again, founded in this 2018 data, but really should be understood that that was very preliminary data and that today dolutegravir is absolutely a preferred drug and should be utilized. Right. Just do you find that it's a difficult conversation that you have to pregnant persons talking about kind of risks for certain ARTs? What's been your experience? Yeah, my experience is they, I feel like most patients, once you walk them through exactly the way we just, or maybe a little bit differently, but that sort of information and how it, every time we come out with a new medication, it takes time for it to be observed, have surveillance data, have these monitoring programs that, and walk them through that process and explain to where we are today. Most patients will understand that and they do. And they'll, now if somebody obviously has fears and prefers to be on, let's say, Raltegravir, and as long as they understand that that's twice a day dosing, then that's okay. They make that decision based on personal preference, but most people would still choose the one daily dosing pill. Yeah. And just talking about other myths, what's your thought about risk perception for people who have vaginal sex? Risk perception is a sort of big concern in thinking that with vaginal sex or that there isn't that much of a risk for HIV transmission. And we struggle that a bit with also the PrEP world, the pre-exposure prophylaxis and uptake in women. And that's a constant also sort of battle having to educate people that one in five diagnoses of new diagnoses of HIV are happening in women. This is the reason why we recommend also in a first trimester screening because many patients are not getting screened otherwise, right? They're maybe thinking they're in a monogamous relationship or a just a condomless vaginal sex. It's not itself that high risk. And so debunking that is also important for patients to understand that they should be getting screened routinely, taking PrEP if they meet criteria, during themselves that just a general risk rather than low risk, quote unquote. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. That's an important message to get out there. I know also with HIV and pregnancies, there's these kind of misconceptions about C-sections and the use of AZT, especially intravenous AZT, peripartum. Can you talk about that a little bit? Maybe start off with the C-sections? Yeah, definitely. So C-sections are definitely something that throughout our understanding of HIV transmission in the 90s, we learned a lot about how specifically the landmark paper with Garcia it all showed us that, and that was in 1999, showed us that mm -hmm. C-section could decrease the risk of, of transmission. And that's where we get that data of showing that people who have a viral load less than 1,000, really 1,000 copies per milliliter, didn't really have trans or high risk, high risk transmission, but those above 1,000 did. That number of 1,000 is very important because many times, let's say you have, and this happens quite a bit in the labor and delivery, someone comes in who we don't know that patient very well. They haven't been receiving prenatal care at our clinic or our hospital. And, but we do have a viral load that just a fear for some providers of saying, okay, this patient has HIV and she's here in labor. The, the quick reflex could be, let's do a C-section. Right. And that would really not be the right thing to do if let's say that patient we know is on ART has been on ART throughout pregnancy, has an undetectable viral load, or at least under a thousand, then really she should have a vaginal delivery if that's what she desires, or she should at least attempt it. And it happens with providers, but it also happens with patients. That's the most common question 
I get at their initial visit is the patient coming in and saying that she knows she's going to need a section, so on and so forth. And I have to tell them, actually, you could have a vaginal delivery if everything is going well throughout the pregnancy and you're taking medications every day, et cetera. And so it's a it's an important message for everyone that C-sections are not the standard of care for someone who is otherwise well-controlled and is adherent to their medication. Yeah. And similarly, how about the use of zidobudine or AZT? Right. The same question of, again, sticking if we're sticking to the guidelines and you have a patient who's coming in and you know them well, and this is why it's, again, to me, so important to have this integrated model of prenatal care and HIV care, because you really get to know that patient throughout their prenatal course. You have 10 months to spend with them and get to know how what their struggles are, if they do have any with adherence, what their home situation is, are they have they disclosed everything to everyone around them and with their family, with their partner. So really having a relationship with the patient is important because AZT is one of those conversations that we have where we say, we know that AZT, again, should be given to people who have detectable viral loads. And we're, so we're saying under 1,000, right? Because really, if they're going for a C-section, they should definitely get it because that means that their viral load is above 1,000. But let's say they're under 1,000, they're at the five, 600 mark. Then yeah, that, that, that person would need it because there's still detectable viremia. And we still want to decrease the risk of transmission to the neonate. But if, I, if we have a patient really who is had undetectable, has been undetectable throughout the, uh, at least the past, at least the third trimester, we know they're adhering to the ARV, you check a viral load by week 36 and it's still undetectable, AZT really is not going to add much to their very low risk at that point, right? And so that person should be really treated just like any other person in labor. They can try a vaginal delivery. They don't need an IV AZT drip running and they can now, the neonate will still get postpartum PEP with AZT prophylaxis for four weeks, but her laboring itself can be just like any other labor. And this also just avoids the situations of having medications hanging in the room. If maybe they're going to have a visitor who's not aware of her status and things like this. So it's also an important considered a conversation to have with the patient of if we do think she's going to need ABT, why, and so on. So it should be a bit more nuanced than just everyone, you know, universally receiving ABT. Moving towards breastfeeding, and I think for our listeners today, there's also the term chest feeding. So I think I'd like to ask you to describe that term because I don't think everyone's familiar with that term. And then just talk a little bit about breastfeeding or chest feeding in pregnant patients living with HIV? Yeah, chest feeding is a term that we utilize now just to be more sensitive to the fact that our populations who are seeking pregnancy don't always necessarily identify as women or having breasts. And so we may have transgender individuals or gender gender diverse individuals who have either transitioned by having mastectomies or top surgery or they maybe haven't, but just don't want to re- refer to that part of their body as breast, just because right. it's not congruent with sort of the image of the body that they have. And so chest feeding just encompasses all individuals who, you know, who have that body part. And so when we talk about chest feeding, it's the official national guidelines, again, HHS still 
tell us and explain to both the patient and the providers that because we live in the United States with access to clean water and for and formula, that chest feeding is not really recommended just because we do have some risk of transmission when someone is, even if their viral load is detect- undetectable in the serum, there's this potential risk of there being potential reservoirs in the breast tissue, of there being milk virus in the milk that we can't necessarily measure. And so the closest data or the best data, even though it's not perfect, but the best is a 0.6% risk of transmission, right? For someone breastfeeding or chest feeding. And we can't necessarily tell the patient that that risk is zero. Right the way we can or tell them with, let's say, unprotected condomless sex, where we know U equals U is a concept that we reinforce all the time. And for chest feeding, that concept of U equals U may not apply. We don't necessarily know yet. I think we still need more data and more research Mm -hmm. done in this field. So because of that, we still have this national guideline saying, don't breastfeed or it's not recommended to chest feed. But there's a little more nuance now as of the March 2022 publication that says, however, if you do choose to chest feed, here are some recommendations for how to support your patient in harm reduction. And so I think that's a really Mm -hmm. important move forward saying, as before, making someone feel guilty because they decided that truly they wanted to do this, or just personally, we know there's great benefits to chest feeding, and we used to almost have to guilt the person or the patient into not doing it. And in reality, it's still happening, even if we don't want to see it. So medicine and providers just need to be a little bit more open to the fact that if someone is going to do something, we may as well support them in doing it and harm reduce. Wow. This field has really moved forward. And I love this whole kind of shared decision-making with the patient. Thanks, Andres, for helping us to unpack some of these myths. I guess shifting a little bit, as we look to the future, what are you most excited about in this field? I think there's still great progress being done and all of the conversation, all of the points we made today come from years of research and experience. Now, the conferences I attend to and participate in, I feel like I love seeing that there's more community members coming, patients themselves who come and advocate for what their needs and what their wants are. And I'm really excited about how, yes, you're right, this has really turned into a patient-centered approach or we're more and more moving towards that. And that some of these questions that maybe have traditionally been there, we're starting to challenge a little bit and looking at some of this data. There's great work, for example, being done on the chest feeding question and people looking at milk itself and viremia in breast and milk, looking at new medications now with injectable medications, even moving towards what is that going to do and how can we utilize that in pregnancy? And then looking at just prevention in general, I think it's going to be, it's really exciting just to think about the fact that now we have injectable PrEP approved and so that we can maybe have a new tool at our disposal to really go out there and and instead of maybe instead of dealing with how to prevent transmission from vertical transmission, we're just going to be talking more about preventing transmission to people of childbearing potential in general. And then if we can decrease the prevalence of transmission there, then, you know, we solve the problem in a way. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And I know that you had mentioned before the way that you have been talking to your patients about prevention. You used 
an analogy of contraception, right? With yeah. HIV prevention. And I found that concept really, and you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. No, this is great work also that came out of some of our colleagues at Montessor, who is Emma Murphy's work, actually. She, you know, that this whole qual- sort of qualitative interviews of exploring the ways in which women who, when presented with the option of PrEP, oftentimes themselves frame it into birth control concepts. And we often talk about birth control as a preventative tool to prevent, in, in that case, a pregnancy, which could be a quote-unquote outcome that is not desired at the moment. And that could be in the form of pills. That could be in the form of injections, like Depo-Provera, of implants. And framing PrEP, and, and the only risk factor for pregnancy, right, in those cases, again, unprotected vaginal intercourse. And so PrEP, in a similar way, if framed in as opposed to destigmatizing who utilizes PrEP a little bit and just saying it's not just for those having 10 partners or more or doing sex work or we taking it out of the field of stigmatizing sexual behaviors and just making it a part of healthy reproductive health. Like every time as gynecologists, we're all used to talking about sex with our patients. So why not then just say, hey, and here's another intervention that if you're having condomless sex with a partner whose status you don't know, this could be for you. And just like birth control, a daily pill to prevent an outcome you're, that is undesired at the moment, this is in the same way. And in that framework, then you get a lot more out of these patients who then express desire to maybe have other forms that are not pills, like injections and like implants. And so I think this is why our new injectable PrEP is going to be so useful in these patients who have expressed that desire to have different forms of PrEP. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. So Andres, thank you for talking with us today. And we look forward to talking with you in the future about these topics. Where can our listeners learn more about your work and or this topic? Yeah, no, I think there's a ton of resources out there for providers who are interested in doing this work and or maybe already doing it but want more support. There's great organizations. The Infectious Disease Society of Such and Gynecology is one IDSOG. We're a national society where many providers share this interest and clinical expertise. And we have great support with listservs and difficult cases, et cetera, that you can join. There's the HIV and Women Workshop, which is happens every year right before CROI. So, which is a great also workshop to, to visit for patients and all providers alike. I think that the Well Project is a really great website with tons of information specifically surrounding, again, chest feeding and options. And then for just tricky, difficult cases, there's hotlines that providers can call. New York State providers have specifically a, the CEI line, which I know you're familiar with, Tony. Yeah. Uh, where they can call to ask us for questions. So you could Google that CEI maternal line, and we have the number. And then there's the national hotline as well for providers outside of New York City, where if you have any gene cases of peri- or mother or child HIV exposure. Great. Well, thank you for sharing those resources. And again, thank you, Andres, for taking the time to speak with us today. And again, we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you. This is great. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.